this week on Forward. Policy outputs result from political inputs, right? And so if you want to make things better, it has to be in the interest of that politician to do so. And then when we did Uber, the same people who don't know who their state senator is, they never vote in the city council primary, were taking the time to advocate for us because A, it was something they cared about, and B, we made it really easy, right? You can do it right from the app. And so when that happened, we're thinking like, holy shit, if people could vote this way, <laughs> maybe turnout would be a lot higher. And then over the succeeding years, cloud and blockchain technology both got better and better. We have to sort of get more and more people voting. And the only election that really matters is the primary because of gerrymandering. And the only way I think to increase primary turnout at scale is to let people do it securely on their phones. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures, but more importantly, a multi-time author, political strategist, uh, a dear friend of mine, Bradley Tusk. Welcome to the podcast, Bradley. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, Bradley, we're going to get to your new novel, Obvious in Hindsight, which I got to say I enjoyed the heck out of. But in order for someone to understand this novel, they have to understand a little bit about you, your journey. You've got a crazy journey. You started as like a normal guy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure my parents and sister would not quite agree with the normal uh, ever. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I started in one industry, which it, it's almost kind of the inverse of you a little bit. right? Like I started in politics and then went into tech. And then started writing. You started in tech, started writing, then went into politics. Wow, man, the anti-me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Neither one's better or worse, but but you know, well, I think part of the reason that, that we like like each other is because we have a lot of similar experiences. We definitely have a lot of similar experiences. I got to say, you're the envy of just about every lawyer I know in terms of uh, the the uh, progression uh, of your career. So people would want to know, how the heck do you go from being a lawyer in politics to a very, very successful venture capitalist? Yeah. So the first thing is, while I am technically a member of the New York Bar, I've never actually practiced law. So the best way to be a successful non-practicing lawyer is to not practice law. That's number one. <laughs> um, Take notes, everyone. So I had sort of three big jobs in, in politics. Uh, the, the most important one to me was um, running Mike Bloomberg's mayoral campaign in 2009. And then I also worked for Mike uh, when he was mayor. Um, I was the deputy governor of Illinois for four years, ran the state's operations, legislation, uh, budget, communications, and operations. A really crazy job because I worked for a uh, sociopath named Rod Blagojevich, uh, and it was a very interesting four years. Um, and then two kind of crazy years on Capitol Hill is Chuck Schumer's communications director, which is considered usually at the hardest because Chuck is the most press hungry member of Congress. Um, being his press guy is like, considered the hardest job in Washington until Trump showed up and then being anywhere, any job for Trump is harder than working for Chuck. But those three things, plus I had a, a few other jobs in politics and then started my first company, it's a consulting firm called Tusk Strategies in 2010. And it runs big campaigns for big companies. So you're Walmart, you're trying to open up stores in four major downtowns, you've got union issues, zoning issues, community issues, we figure all that stuff out. And I'm sitting in a meeting in early 2011, and a friend of mine, Kevin Sheiky, who I think you know, yep. Kevin calls me and says, hey, there's this guy with a small transportation startup, he's having some regulatory problems, would you mind talking to him? Sure, whatever Kevin asks me to do, I always say sure. Um, but I become Uber's first political uh, advisor that day. And then I get really lucky when Travis calls back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee. 
would you take equity? I didn't even know what equity meant, uh, but thank fucking God I said yes. That was back during the Series A. Um, and then spent the better part of the next few years running the campaigns all over the U.S. to legalize Uber and ride sharing. And the thing that we figured out that really worked, um, not unlike in some ways some of the same sentiments I think you've, you've tapped into over the years, which is we were a tiny little tech startup. Taxi was a very big, muscular, politically connected industry. But what we realized is our customers could become our biggest advocates. And every time, basically the same playbook ever, we'd show up in a city, taxi would get upset, they'd lean on their politician friends, we would get a cease and desist letter, we would ignore said cease and desist letter, build up as much of a customer base as we could, the threats from the government would get stronger and stronger, and then we would turn on the customer base and say, okay, if you like this thing and want to keep it, you need to text, email, tweet, call, whatever it is, this particular elected official. And the way it really worked was we could do it all through the app, right? Which is ultimately what led to the mobile voting stuff that I'm doing. And that worked. And we beat Taxi and, and um, did the process again with Clear to get them into airports, took equity, that worked. And then met my partner, Jordan Knopf, who, run, who was running Blackstone's internal venture fund at the time. And the question we started asking is, if you truly understand regulation and you can truly do something about it, how much of a better investor does that make you? 10%, 20%, 30%? And, and we didn't know the answer. Well, well you should know that, yeah. I mean, traditional venture capitalists try and steer clear of things. Exactly. That, that so we, we run towards what everyone else runs away from, which has both been good and bad. It's been good <laughs> in that when it comes to deal flow, returns for our investors, all of that, really good because I have a monopoly in this tiny little space. And the reality is most businesses are regulated one way or another by government, so they're going to run into issues. Um, it's bad because it made raising the first couple of funds really hard, right? Because Hey, guys, we're about to just run into whatever the Yeah, heck. and do something totally different than ever. Like, <laughs> like at, regulatory thicket you totally. can think of. We're going to run into it. Right, and because of my training in politics, you know, I was used to the like, this is new and different and bigger and better than ever, kind of like that was my sales pitch. And yep. it turns out what like institutional investors want to hear is, this is exactly like what you've always done with this tiny risk-free twist, right? And it took me years to sort of figure out how to sort of adapt to that. Um, now that we're out there raising our fourth fund, um, it's a little easier because we've sort of proven out the model. We continue to have a monopoly in our little space. But um, we're kind of a unique venture fund. So we invest in seed and Series A startups, so the same kind of people you, you dealt with when you started. Um, and we ask all the same usual stuff. How big is the market? What's the founder like? What do we think of the idea? But then we ask two more questions that usually are not asked. One is, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved could really drive growth and valuation? And if so, can we solve it? And when the answer is yes to both, wow. that's what really makes sense for us to invest. So like the first deal we ever did was FanDuel, ran all the campaigns to legalize fantasy sports betting. Holy crap. Was was that a good deal then? Because like I, I literally- It worked out really well. And yeah. using FanDuel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I bet on an NBA game yeah, last night. Yeah, that worked out. I mean, we're actually long gone. Once the company goes public, once the lockup's over, we're out. But, but it went really well. Um, and so we're literally running regulatory and political campaigns for our portfolio companies to legalize whatever new idea it is. And it could be something that already exists, like taxis or sports betting, um, but could also be things like cryptocurrency or, fl or flying cars or autonomous trucks or delivery drones or whatever it is. I remember that Uber campaign where everyone's like, hey, tell your local uh, officials that you love this thing. And yeah. the fact is we all did love it because we're like, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, this is vastly superior to, yes. <laughs> to whatever the heck. Yeah. Uh, and and you, so you had proof of concept. Now, you named a bunch of things uh, that might be uh, 
skirmishing with regulators upcoming. Mm -hmm. Are you invested in things that you can talk about sure. where you can say, hey, guys, like here are some of the things that we're working yeah, on? So we're not in any flying car companies, um, although I have to say when I started working on this, it was like, here's a cool, fantastical concept. Yep. And that industry has evolved really fast. And three years later, I would say that they are sort of vying with autonomous cars now to sort of be the first mover. So it has, I didn't expect that to happen. It's pretty cool. And as a result, we have been looking at some deals. We haven't done one. I don't think it fits our investment profile because it's so capital intensive that it's probably not the right kind of deal for us. Um, but yeah, you know, so one of our biggest spaces is in digital health. And the thing that is, it's hard to say that COVID was ever good, but one thing where COVID actually had a silver lining is it introduced people to the concept of, of digital health where you can sort of talk to a medical professional over some sort of electronic device um, and get your care that way. And not surprising if you can do it in a much easier way than it used to be before, people prefer that, right? And so um, we've got lots of investments in that space. So like one company is called Roman, it's, it's a men's health company. Um, and we, for them, we had to legalize prescription via text. Um, because, you know, first doctors wanted, the medical boards want you have to go in in person, then they kind of relented to video, but the, the idea that Zach Ritano, the founder of Roman, had was if people could asynchronously receive care. Be a freaking huge value add, you know? Exactly. And so there's that. Um, one of our best investments coming up, Alma, they're a company that basically is the business in a box for therapists. So therapists are kind of two things at the same time. One is the thing they want to be, which is mental health professionals. And two is the thing they don't want to be, which are small business owners. And yet they're both. And what Alma built was the software where it takes care of all the insurance, all the billing, all the scheduling, all the pain in the ass stuff. But the regulatory battle has been allowing doctors in one state to treat patients in another state, cross-state licensure. Well, don't you know that people's brains are totally different across state lines? Oh, yeah. A Kansas <laughs> yeah. brain and a Nebraska brain, totally <laughs> different. Um, it's protectionism, right, obviously, from the yeah. state medical boards. And so we've been fighting that off. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot in digital health, but, but fintech, gaming, transportation, you know, we're in lots of different sectors. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right? And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
Congratulations, man. I mean, Thanks. you're you're pushing the envelope, and some people might hear that and say, oh. But then when you talk about the use cases, it's like clearly everyone would be better off if you could get prescriptions. Uh, you I know, think so. Like the way we communicate now. I mean, the younger generation, they, they don't want to pick up the phone, much less see you in person. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if they're going to get uh, what they need, I, I think uh, that kind of innovation makes perfect sense. So you talked about flying cars because that is the main narrative in your new novel, yep. Obvious in Hindsight. Um, and, and so it seems far out that there's this flying car company that wants to uh, make it okay <laughs> to, to, to fly cars in New York City or Austin or wherever it is. And I got to say, the book is very much a love letter uh, to New York City. Uh, New York City is kind of a character in the book, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, da- absolutely. I think a little bit because, so a couple of years ago, um, you know Howard Wolfson, right? Yeah. Howard and I started this thing called the Gotham Book Prize, um, where every year we give out a $50,000 prize to the best book either about New York City or set in New York City that year. Um, and as a result, I think I've just, just as a judge, I've read so many books uh, that I think it, be, it got entrenched in my head. And obviously my book is uh, not winning any prizes, but, um, but nonetheless, I think that kind of helped me turn, turn New York City into a character. Well, it, it shows, man. It's like that this book is a love letter to New York City, but uh, it's also a fascinating inside look to how the heck you try and make an innovation uh, legal. <laughs> and, and so... Um, before we started recording, you were talking about the genesis of this project mm-hmm. where it started out. And by the way, it, it reads very much like a movie um, screenplay in part because that's kind of uh, it was started out as a TV series. or it, it did. So um, Steven Soderbergh, the director of Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, Ocean's Eleven and all these various movies he's won Academy Awards for. Do you know how this is sort of trend where celebrities like to buy liquor companies? I did notice that. Yes. So Stephen bought a brandy company based in Bolivia and then ran some regulatory issues because A, alcohol heavily regulated, B, importation heavily regulated, C, Bolivia is a communist country with whom we have no diplomatic relations. So he needed a, in order to just market the product in the way he wanted to market it, we needed a federal rule change. So Stephen and I had a mutual friend. We got introduced started working together on this. And then when the galley for my first book, The Fixer, came out, I handed it to him and said, hey, just wrote this, would love your opinion on it. And he said, okay, I'm flying to London tonight, I'm gonna read it on the plane. I wake up the next morning and there's an email from Steven saying, we gotta make this a TV show. Um, so I start playing around with concepts of like, what would a fictionalized version of that look like? Um, and at the time it was like, well, flying cars is a sort of fantastical futuristic concept, let's make it about that. And uh, I wrote the pilot, he, he kind of, I wrote it together. I wrote the next nine scripts. We started pitching it. Our big meeting with Apple TV was set for March 10th, 2020. Of course, COVID came. Meeting never happened. Uh, Steven moved on to other stuff. But I liked the concept so much that I felt like I still want, I didn't want to just let it sort of fall apart. Sure. So I converted into a novel. Well, I, I got to say, the craftsmanship in this novel is really evident, as is the time, uh, the, the heart. Um, and th- that explains it, actually, because it sounds like what you did is you had this entire uh, multi-episode script, yeah, and then that ended up getting incorporated into the novel. Yeah, and look, ultimately, if you look at the original scripts and the novel, they ended up being pretty different in, in some ways. Um, and in some ways, novels, we were talking about this before we started recording, writing fiction is really hard. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but but yeah, I, it, I, I think that it just sort of gave me enough of a framework that I was able to to do it. The hardest thing was to sort of let go of some 
characters and some plot lines, right? Because, <laughs> you know, the fun thing about working in politics in real life is like crazy shit happens all the time by definition, which makes it hard, but also interesting. And in some ways, I didn't, I mean, the book exaggerates reality a little bit, but but not really that much. Yeah, I, I think it felt pretty accurate to me, honestly. So, uh, so let's talk about it a little bit. Uh, it's about a uh, flying car startup, and mm-hmm. it's somewhat aggressive slash eccentric CEO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the engineers that are making it work behind the scenes, and Firewall, this uh, comms firm that they hire to try and run the campaign to, yep. to make it legal. They, they start pitting cities against each other. They're like, hey, Austin, don't you want to be the flying car city? <laughs> hey, New York. Which, by the like a lot of this did ring very, very true to me. Um, so uh, talk a, a little bit about uh, like the the characters and what you were trying to convey, aside from a very, very true-to-life sense of how this process actually yeah, works. Yeah, sure. So, um, so the, the book, as you said, it's about a campaign to legalize flying cars in New York, Los Angeles, and Austin. On one side is Flight Deck, the flying car startup, and their vicious political consultants called Firewall. Um, and then the other side is Uber, the Audubon Society, the socialists, the transit <laughs> workers, and the Russian mob. Um, and while you know the books are obviously a little bit exaggerated just to make it fun to read, the real thing I wanted to get across is just how decisions are really made in tech and in politics, right? Yeah. Um, and fundamentally, the thing that I learned from the first 20 years I spent directly working in government and politics is every policy output is is the result of a political input. Every politician, with a few exceptions here and there, but basically every politician makes every decision solely based on the next election and nothing else. And if they believe that doing what you want can help them win their next election or not doing what you want could cost them their next election, they will work with you. And if you can't prove one of those two things, you are irrelevant. And so what I wanted in the book was all of the different politicians in the book to be making their decisions along those lines, right? Um, to try to give the readers a sense of, look, you may like, you may want the world to work in a certain way, but this is how it actually works. And if you understand it, then maybe you can do something about it. Yeah, I, I think that's the main lesson I got from the book is this gritty uh, sense of how things happen in real life. Uh, and there's almost this outside-inside narrative where it's like the outside would be like, hey, we're delivering this policy because it's great for consumers. <laughs> I like. Did you see the recent talk from Bill Gurley? Like uh, that. Yes. Was going around, was going around and talks about this. That yes. that it's that there's actually this. Unfortunately, this real regulatory capture. I learned some of this from you. I also learned some of this from from uh, your book um, about just how much of a knife fight it is behind the scenes to to figure out which policy wins. Yeah, and it's interesting. So Bill and then Mark Andreessen wrote. I, I haven't read it yet, but I know he wrote sort of like a tech utopia, no regulation screed recently. Um, and, and on one hand, you know, they're both much better VCs than I am, but I got to identify that with them because I'm, I'm trying to be like them, I guess. Um, on one hand, it is really rough to sort of figure out how do you take down an entrenched interest? Or if it's a brand new technology like, you know, um, uh, psilocybin legalization, right? Like well, there is no regulatory framework, right? So w- what should it be? Um, so it's a big fight both with other startups, with entrenched interests, um, you know, with regulators. I think the prevailing view in tech that all regulation is bad is not correct, yeah. right? Um, and, and you obviously understand the nuance of all of this. You know, regulation is, ne- in my view, neither inherently good nor bad. Um, it's just a question of what the regulation is, how it's applied. 
And if it's applied to sort of further the best interests of consumers, that's great. Uh, regulatory capture, which you mentioned before, is usually when the entrenched interest, who is not particularly serving consumers well, like the taxi industry, have developed so much political power that the regulators end up just protecting them as opposed to looking out for the voters and the constituents and the consumers and all of that. And so, you know, in my day job of sort of investing in startups and then trying to help their political issues, um, you know, there's a mix of trying to figure out what regulations do we need to allow the business to succeed, but what are also regulations that will allow the industry to succeed long term, that will protect consumers, like just sort of getting over on somebody like, you know, it's, it might work for a year or two, but at the end of the day, if you want a sustainable long term sector and industry, it's got to work for everyone. Um, and a lot of our job is figuring that out. Yeah, um, Uber is a great example because Uber is something that solved a real problem and co consumers loved it. Uh, and so then if you put it up to, you know, public opinion, everyone was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, let's make that happen. Now, to be clear, there were entrenched interest taxi companies where the value of their medallions, um, you know, suffered as a result. And, and that that's uh, that's rough, but you don't want to curb innovation because you could apply that kind of lens to like a lot of different situations. Uh, and the the question is, where do you draw the lines? You hope that you have political figures that are actually mindful of like the the trade offs, but unfortunately, right now, the answer to whoever can get in their ear with the fact, look, you you come this way. So you guys did something that at the time was like a massive innovation. Was like it was highly unusual to appeal to the public, right? But it was the only way to. If, so if you take the political input shape policy outputs, it was the only way to do it, right? So if we just assume the baseline nature of politics as it is, not as we'd like it to be. You're a city council member in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Taxi guys give you two grand per campaign cycle. Yep. In return for the two grand, you do what they want, yep. right? I just had 4,000 people from your district tweet, text, email, call, and all these ways tell you, leave this thing alone. I love this thing, right? And as a result, the input shifted from, sure, for the two grand, I'll do what the taxi guys want to. There's no fucking way that I'm going to do what the taxis guys want and piss off all of these constituents in my district. Um, we changed the inputs. Or like FanDuel is a good example too, where, you know, I sort of remember the conversations we would have with like a state rep in Alabama, wherever it is. And it'd be like pretty simple. Like, look, you have 3,214 FanDuel and DraftKings customers in your district. Let's be honest. They don't know who you are. They probably don't even know what a state rep is, but they fucking love fantasy sports betting. And if you take this away from them... We are going to register every one of them to vote. We are going to tell them that you're the one that did it, and we are going to bring them to the polls to vote against you in the next election. And you know what every politician in America said? I don't need that problem. And we were able to legalize it one way or another everywhere. So it's it's inputs and outputs. So the, the subject on a lot of people's minds right now, which is near and dear to me, is uh, AI. I'm sure some of the companies mm -hmm. that you're investing in sure. um, utilize AI in various ways. Uh, and there is uh, you know concern or a certain public appetite for some kind of uh, regulatory um, framework or even agency or organ uh, that doesn't seem to be coming from DC in part because they're looking up saying, Hey guys, uh, you know, like there, last I checked, there were over a half dozen different proposals. So no one knows. Yeah. Like one of my jokes is like, if you have 10 proposals, you have no proposals right. <laughs> <laughs> is what's happening. Um, do you have a viewpoint on the, 
um, adoption of AI in terms of things you're excited about. And yeah, that, sure. So I, I've got, I've kind of got a viewpoint of it as a venture capitalist and then as kind of a, a political hack or whatever you want to call me. Um, so my fun, the way we see AI is it's not even that it's a specific category. It is a tool that every one of our portfolio companies should at least be asking themselves if it could be useful to them. Um, and we have a lot of companies that we don't call AI companies but they're using AI to perform their underlying functions. So Kodiak, which is an autonomous trucking company, the autonomous trucking is done by artificial intelligence. Elaborate, which is a company that produces, takes those incomprehensible lab reports you get from your doctor and turns them into really easy to read infographics, that's done by AI. The contract network, which can, you can basically say, hey, I want a contract around this, and then it could almost create it for you with all of the industry comps and everything else sort of automatically. That's AI. Now, we don't call any of those AI companies, um, but I think that outside of the one category of generative AI, it's something that we're going to see in everything. And from a regulatory standpoint, you know, there's two different ways that you have to look at it. The first would be these companies are still subject to all of the lots of existing laws that govern their behavior, right? Um, Lena Khan, who runs the FTC, and I did an event here at this bookstore that we're at right now a couple of months ago, and she said, like, you know, yes, we're going to need AI laws, but the reality is most of these companies are already covered by existing regulations and laws. They just have to comply with them. So that that's true. Um, the other thing, though, is, you know, by definition, regulation lags innovation, right? If the bureaucrats that make the rules could instead be tech founders coming up with brilliant ideas and making millions of dollars, they would do that, right? They can't. So the founder has to sort of come up with it first. Um, and so I don't think we know yet exactly what AI regulation needs to look like. I will say this. There are existing policy proposals out there around tech, like repealing Section 230 or having some sort of U.S. version of GDPR, a privacy framework for data, that I think would actually get at a lot of the potential problems caused by AI. And while it's great that people in Congress are throwing together proposals, you know, we should have repealed Section 230 15 years ago. Yeah, you know, true. So, like, we haven't even done the Internet you know, 2.0 regulation, let alone Internet 3.0. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's funny is like you built your career uh, in, in politics and then now you're kind of this strange hybrid. You're like Blade. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 guess I, I kind of pick at any given moment what I want to be, right? Yeah, so we're sitting in a podcast studio in a bookstore that's kind of another love letter to, to New York. Can you talk a little bit? Because now I one of the things I said is like, like you said something to me where someone can actually just use this podcast. Studio. Yeah, it's free. Um, so I opened up, so uh, I mentioned the, the Gotham Book Prize, and I was really enjoying kind of working with authors, and had, you know, I've always loved books, and I read a crazy amount, and I'd always thought like one day when I retired or something, it'd be fun to own a bookstore. And then when COVID hit and the city lost 600,000 jobs, my view was, you know what, Bradley, you, you're going to lose money whenever you do this, um, and luckily you can afford to lose money. You might money. as well start losing money now. Now, right. <laughs> um, but, you know, as a result, if you can do something nice for New York from a retail standpoint, which is open up uh, a store and hire, you know, a dozen people, and they're on the same health care that the people on venture capital fund gets, wow. um, and create this community resource, like, do it at a time when the city is hurting, right? A lot of the same logic on a much smaller scale that led you to choose to run for mayor, right? The city is hurting, and you knew that you had been able to sort of help bring it back, um, and this administration <laughs> confirms that every single day. Um, so um, I started looking into it, and I wanted it to be somewhere downtown, and I, we found this spot on Orchard between Houston and Stanton. And my grandparents, when they came, and my dad, when they came to this country from the refugee camps in Europe after World War II, 
Um, my grandfather and a guy he knew from the camp started a 300 square foot sweater store on Allen Street called P&T Knitwear. And so I texted my dad and said, I'm about to sign a lease. Where was that store? Because I knew it was around here somewhere. And he told me, I'm like, that's the next block. And he's like, wow. yeah. And I said, what was it called? And he said, P&T Knitwear. And then he texted, but you can't name a bookstore P&T Knitwear. So, of course, the store is named uh, P&T Knitwear. We are a bookstore. <laughs> um, we are the only podcast studio uh, that I know of, at least in New York, maybe anywhere, that just anyone can use for free. Just come on our website. You, you heard it here. It. Yep. You, New you, York. You want to use it? We are happy to have you. Um, we are an event space, both in the Lower Side community and literary community. And again, if you're a Lower Side organization, we give it to you for free. So just let us know. Um, and a cafe. And so it's... Um, it's really lovely, guys. You it's gotta been a lot of fun. If you're in the area. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been great. It, clearly not the best way to make money, but I really enjoy it. You know, I mean, it, it's a labor of love. Uh, and one of the things that's wild about you, man, is that you're like hyper smart and commercial, but you also have a lot of heart. I mean, you, you do a lot Thank of you. things because you know that they're the right thing to do. Certainly, uh, your work in mobile voting, which I freaking love, yeah. um, is just because you think it's going to be better for the future. I don't see a world. So, so if you get back to a couple of things that we've been saying, right? So the thing I learned in all my time in politics, and I did city government, state government, federal government, executive branch, legislative branch, I'm a lawyer. Like I've seen this from pretty much every angle. Yeah. It's that while there are exceptions, you would be one if you were in office. Mike Bloomberg was certainly one. Um Policy outputs result from political inputs, right? And so if you want to make things better, it has to be in the interest of that politician to do so. And then when we did Uber, the same people who don't know who their state senator is, they never vote in a city council primary, were taking the time to advocate for us because A, it was something they cared about, and B, we made it really easy, right? You could do it right from the app. And so when that happened, we're thinking like, holy shit, if people could vote this way, <laughs> maybe turnout would be a lot higher. And then over the succeeding years, Cloud and blockchain technology both got better and better. Um, and so in 2018, I started funding elections in different states uh, where either deployed military or people with disabilities were voting in real elections on their phone. Uh, we did seven states, 21 jurisdictions. They were all audited by National Cybersecurity Center, all came back clean, turned on an average doubled. City of Denver did a poll of the people who participated. A hundred percent, not surprisingly, said they prefer it because, <laughs> to your point before about like getting a prescription, you know, uh, online as opposed to having to go somewhere. Um, but the cybersecurity community, especially the, the, the people who are just obsessed with paper ballots, and I'm sure you've, you've come across them. Well, I mean, this is the, the disingenuousness, man. It's like you say, hey, why don't we vote uh, over the internet on our mobile phones and be like, oh, it's not secure. And you can show them 20, <laughs> yeah. 20 things being like it's perfectly secure, demos and the rest of it. But the truth is they just don't want us to be able to vote that way. No, they, they don't want more turnout. Yeah, I mean, they like things the way they are. If, if turnout gets too high, there's a, a the mobile voting book that I mentioned that I just wrote. The, one of the chapters opens with, do you know who Abner Mikva was? No, I don't. So Abner Mikva was a federal judge. He was Clinton's White House counsel. Um, I took his class in law school at, at the University of Chicago. Um, and sort of this just famous sort of Chicago legend. And in like 1948 or whatever it was, he's a young man. And he walks into the Adlai Stevenson for president office in Chicago and says, I'd like to volunteer. And like a ward boss, I think it was Tim O'Sullivan, sort of takes a hit off a cigar and says, well, who sent you? And he said, nobody. And so <laughs> Sullivan said, we don't want nobody that nobody sent. And I, th I think they've actually named one of his books uh, that. And But that's still the reality today, right? Which is 
they don't want, the reason they do gerrymandering, the reason they schedule elections in you know, dates that are hard to vote out of, that restrict access, is they want to control the electorate. And they especially don't want Gen Z and Gen Alpha when they come of age voting because they're going to be held accountable for all kinds of problems that they've let fester and, and, and let get out of control. And so I think that the, the bad news about politicians is they'll do whatever they have to do to stay in office. The good news is they'll do whatever they have to do to stay in office. So when turnout is 12 percent, let's say you're a Republican congressman from Florida um, and turnout 12 percent in your primary, half of those members, half of those voters are NRA members. You know intellectually that it's crazy that someone can walk into a store and walk out with an AK-47. But you also know that should you ever say that, you're done. Uh, there's a congressman from upstate New York in the Buffalo area named Chris Jacobs, who's a Republican, super Trumper. But there was, a, if you might remember this, a mass shooting Terrible at a supermarket shooting, in yeah. Buffalo. And he sort of said, we, we need to look at some of these laws. He you know, was really shaken by it. They immediately stripped the line from him. So he couldn't run in the next election. Yeah, terrible. And his career ended. Or take you know, a New York tech example. Amazon did this uh, headquarter competition, HQ2, which is I kind of stole a little bit of that strategy in, in the novel. Yeah. And they picked New York, which was great. And they picked uh, Long Island City, which is a district that, that you got to know. And the polling showed that a majority of the district wanted it, a majority of the city wanted it. Yep. But turnout in that primary is typically like 14%. A guy named Mike Janaris, who's a very smart politician, but a politician through and through, understood that that 14% hated Amazon, hated Jeff Bezos, hated tech, hated big business, and that he would be punished politically if he let the deal go through. And so he's the guy that led the fight. I mean, AOC did this too, but really Janaris did it on a state level. He's the guy that led the fight to, to kill the bill. He picked one job his own, over 40,000 jobs. Yeah. Why? Because those 14% uh, would be, you know, Highly upset, right? Yeah. But now let's just sort of say people can vote on their phones and turn out in that Republican primary and, and Janaris's primary, both 36%. So still like a third. Just based on the math and based on the polling, the Republican would have to be for an assault weapons ban because that's what the majority of his voters would want. Yes. Generis would have to be for the Amazon headquarters that the majority of his voters would want. And so if we want things to get done, we have to sort of get more and more people voting. And the only election that really matters is the primary because of gerrymandering. And the only way, I think, to increase primary turnout at scale is to let people do it securely on their phones. Yeah, and as usual, you've put your money where your mouth is. Anyone who wants to can go to mobilevoting.org. Uh, Bradley's been working on it for years, and we are conspiring to make it a reality. That's how we're going to unlock yeah. a ton of good for people. This book was, I, I got to say, man, you've done a lot of impressive shit in your career, and this book actually is right up there. Thank you. Because I was reading it, and and this, you know, I came up with a novel recently, and I'm sure some people are reading it and be like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, uh, why, why is, uh, you know, this person writing a novel? Like, this novel is actually important. Uh, you know, like, if, if people you. read this, they will have a much firmer grasp of how stuff is happening. It's entertaining. It's lively. It reads like it should be uh, on Apple TV. Honestly, I hope people check out Obvious in Hindsight because you'll be entertained, but you'll also learn a lot about how things work and sometimes don't work. Yeah, well, Andrew, thanks for, for saying that. Thanks for the podcast and for all the different things you do. You know, I found a bunch of ways to work together and uh, mobile voting is just the next one. Mobile voting, obvious in hindsight, Bradley Tusk. Can't wait to see what you do next, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>